I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. This is an exclusive audio podcast edition of the program. In 2013, I was struck by reading in the MIT Caltech Voting Technology Project an excerpt of a contribution from our guest today. It's my hope that I will be visiting my granddaughter, Victoria, at her college 10 years from now, and she will tell me, Papa, I just registered and voted online. It was easy. Those are the words of Paul D. Gregorio, and it always moved me so that years ahead of this pandemic, there was someone who was so astutely thinking about the necessity to democratize access to voting. Paul D. Gregorio has served as commissioner and chairman of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, chief operating officer and technical consultant for the International Foundation for Election Systems, and he's an internationally renowned election expert and mission chief who's worked around the world to support the franchise. I'm so honored to host him to discuss how we can protect the integrity of the vote amid this global pandemic, the likes of which we haven't seen since 1918. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Alexander. It's great to be with you. It's great to host you. And we were on the same wavelength because during the years that I was reporting on the youth vote and encouraging young people's literacy and engagement in the political process, I didn't think it was a far-fetched idea that in my lifetime, and now in your lifetime too, we could see remote balloting, whether that's through mail-in balloting or even eventually electronic digital balloting. Uh, and your words, when you envision a day in America where you can access the vote by logging into a secure system online and voting, uh, that is a vision that we may need to realize. So I wanted you to give a lay of the land to our listeners. Where have we implemented um, as a society um, around the world successful remote voting electronically? Sure. You know, in actuality, remote online voting is, is nothing new. And, and is something that has gone on for uh, well over 10 years throughout the world in various forms uh, for uh, private elections and public elections. I mean, uh, it, it's been some time since uh, there's been a lot of private elections conducted where people elected boards of directors and made their voices heard through online voting methods. And even uh, in many universities, their student council, uh, student leadership elections have used online technology uh, for people to make decisions on who is going to provide the leadership, uh, be it for a university or for a board. And online voting in the public specter where um, entities, government entities, has used it, uh, has really, it's grown quite a bit in the last 10 years. And... Um, and there's been trials, uh, but there's and there's also been uh, real elections where it's been used on a consistent basis. I mean, Switzerland um, has used online voting for many years now uh, because it's a referendum type of country. That is, uh, they put forth referendums in front of the voters uh, on a frequent basis 
for people to make decisions on what what direction or policy Switzerland should take, and and particularly at the municipal level. So the Swiss have been used to using online voting for that. Um, perhaps the uh, most visible uh, country that uses utilizes online voting on a regular basis is Estonia. Uh, Estonia has used online methods, or at least allowed it to be used, and provided a, it as a method for people to vote in their country for at least 10 years now. And it's a voluntary thing. So people can also go to the polling place. They can also vote by mail or at vote centers. Uh, but in the recent election last year for the European Parliament in uh, uh, about a year ago in May, um, nearly half of Estonians used the online method to cast their ballots. And Estonia, which is also likes to be known as Estonia uh, because of its uh, high-tech society, I was very proud of the way they do this, and and uh, and they have looked at it very hard in the way that they authenticate the voters, the way that they prevent fraud, and all the other things that have to be mitigated when you use an online method to cast their, their votes. But other countries, like um, Canada, has used it in municipal uh, elections, again, for referendum and local elections, um, Iceland, uh, even Spain uh, and, and France and the UK have tried different ways to allow people to vote online, uh, and some of them have been pilots. Uh, but in the US, um, actually, online voting is something that has been utilized before. In 2008, the Democratic Party in Arizona had an online voting channel for people to vote in the Democratic presidential primary. Uh, in 2016, in Utah, the Republicans uh, utilized online voting uh, for many of their citizens who are abroad. Of course, Utah is the home of, um, of the Mormon Church, and many uh, thousands are on missionaries across the world, and they utilized uh, an online voting channel to cast their ballots uh, for their presidential preference um, in 2016. And so it has been used uh, in a political sense and an uh, electoral sense uh, uh, in many different countries, utilizing different, many different methods. And so uh, it's a technology that is really not necessarily new, but I think uh, with this whole um, pandemic occurring across the globe and affecting elections uh, in serious ways, that is something that is really being looked at very seriously now, and, and I applaud that. It's something, you're right, I have advocated for a long time. I've kind of been a techie. Uh, I was doing video chats, uh, actually, um, when I was doing work in the Russian Federation in the late 90s, I was doing video chats with my, my family, uh, pretty primitive dial-up, um, but I was doing you know video chats online, and I do think that, um, and I've always thought, that with the technology we have today and with the use of technology about everyone with a smartphone, uh, that it can be used to uh, allow people to make decisions and really increase participation. And uh, it's my biggest fear for this election, this presidential election coming up, that if we get second waves or other things happen that, that people are fearful of going to the polling place and catching this virus, that um, participation could be decreased 
because of it, because people don't want to go to the polling places and states haven't made provisions to give people opportunities to vote by other means. And, uh, and so I'm concerned about that. Now, online voting is something that uh, takes time to implement it and you have to have uh, great authentication and security measures in place to make sure that it's not being tampered with. But Estonia has certainly shown that you can have a secure system that works. I said on Twitter, Paul, every single governor and secretary of state must implement early and mail-in balloting. The vote must go on in a democracy. And I emphasize that I am a believer in the paper trail, but the pandemic proves what you wrote in that MIT Caltech report and what I've long believed, which is democracy is something that can be democratized um, and digitized in a way that protects and expands the franchise. Now we're safeguarding the integrity of the vote by virtue of innovation and thinking about how our votes can be protected online. So let's not resign ourselves to this unimaginative, what I said, unimaginative and unexpansive view of democratization. Um, and, and let's not do that because you're suggesting in smaller scales than the population of the US, countries and municipalities have been able to secure electronically the vote. And often when you hear critics of this hypothetical, they are saying that democracy cannot allow for even a scintilla of fraud. Banks can. Now, an argument that I've put forward in the past is if we can trust a digital infrastructure, we don't think about, many of us don't think about going to the bank anymore. We think about it as our bank or loan provider has secured that for us online and through two-step verification and other automated security processes, we can rest confidently that this is safe. So I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to dispel this idea that we can't protect votes online. Um, what can guarantee the original paper trail, if you will, of the vote so that we can use the systems that have worked on, on perhaps a trial basis, um, maybe in the run-up to this 2020 election or subsequently, or at least demo uh, models of electronic remote uh, voting. So how, how, can, how can you respond with authority to say that, uh, yes, if, if our online banking and, and e-commerce can be protected, so too can our electronic voting? Well, there's ways to mitigate it. And, and, I, and I do believe, uh, you know, people are, are sincere in being concerned about fraud. I mean, we all should be, uh, because fraud in elections really takes away uh, the votes from people who um, are casting it, you know, without fraud involved. And, and of course, that's, that should be, uh, you know, consideration no matter what system we are using. But you're right that in banking and other things that we do online, we have uh, other methods of uh, verification. I use two-step verification all the time. And people you know, are concerned about hacking and such. You know, Estonia is right next door to the Russian Federation. And, and the Russian Federation has tried to wreak havoc with Estonia's system 
um, mainly attacking candidates and governmental websites, uh, not actually the voting system, or they didn't penetrate the voting system. Um, but, you know, I'll give the Estonia example again, where, you know, the vote is encrypted and it's digitally signed on the voter's device, which is more often than not a smartphone in Estonia. It has kind of a double envelope principle that is used in like vote by mail, where you put uh, a, an absentee ballot that you've, that you've marked inside an envelope and then inside another envelope uh, to preserve the secrecy of that ballot when it's counted. Um, you know, in this case, in an online system, the outer envelope, the just signature, assures the integrity of the vote and that it came from the elder of a voter. Um, and what's, what's interesting about this online system in Estonia, which is true with many uh, uh, systems like this that are used in other parts of the world, is that the voters can check to see that their choices exactly match those received by the digital ballot box. Uh, they scan, they get a receipt, like a QR code, um, in, the, in their app after they've cast their ballot, and the exact match of that uh, tells them that the vote was not changed, tampered with, or deleted in transit across the internet. And of course, they have uh, experts and security experts who check to make sure that this is not being tampered with. But there's a way for voters to actually verify to do that. And in Estonia, to prevent uh, vote buying, uh, people can cast their ballot up until the time that the voting ends, which is typically eight o'clock on a, on a Sunday. Uh, but you can vote weeks in advance, uh, a candidate drops out or you decide to change your mind and you can change your mind up until the last minute of voting. And that's something that they instituted to, um, uh, to prevent fraud. Um, but Alexander, there's, you know, there's other ways um, to use digital technology for people to vote. For instance, if you and I happen to be living abroad right now, and uh, me here in St. Louis and you in New York right now, but, but if we were in, you know, say Paris and Rome, uh, working as a U.S. citizen abroad, um, under the, um, the Military and Overseas Empowerment Act of 2009, which I, I helped to get passed by Congress, um, military and overseas U.S. citizens have the right uh, by federal law to access their ballot online uh, to print it off, uh, mark it, um, and mail it back uh, to be counted. And of course, that saves time, effort. Uh, many studies and studies I was involved with um, back in the early 2000s showed that military and overseas voters uh, had very low participation because the ballot had to be mailed to them and mailed back and it never made it in the transit in many cases one way or, or the other and so uh, congress passed this to allow military voters to access their ballot and in 23 states actually they can return this ballot electronically now in many cases you give up your right to privacy when you do that because during the transit somebody could see your ballot but they can scan and, and check your signatures. They can authenticate you to make sure that's your ballot and then count it as you cast it. Um, uh, and, and so it's, it's utilized that way. And I, I think uh, that this country can use this uh, for this coming November election really relatively easy. 
no, I say relative, because if a lot of people use this, um, that increases work for the election officials on one hand, where they have to um, process these ballots and have, perhaps have more staff to do it and have safe areas where people, are, especially if this virus has another wave, uh, can be uh, feel secure in opening these, these ballots that come from people. And it may take longer to count them, but we, you know, if it's, if it's about saving lives in the process, then it's certainly something we want to do. And I, I think this is what I would call a relatively easy solution that uh, jurisdictions can use. And it certainly has been advocated by election officials across the country right now as a mechanism. Um, Alexander, I think you probably followed, as did many people in the country, uh, the debacle in Wisconsin on April 7th, uh, where the state went forth with a statewide uh, primary election, even though there were many attempts by election officials and others to try to get it stopped and postponed to another day. But sadly, um, because of a lack of leadership, they conducted this election and it was just absolutely appalling uh, because, for instance, in Milwaukee, they had to consolidate uh, 180 polling places into five vote centers. And so all these people had to be funneled into uh, five centers to cast their ballots if they didn't vote absentee beforehand. And, and thousands upon thousands of people showed up at the polls with masks on and trying to keep their distance. And many had to wait up to uh, four or five hours in line uh, to cast their ballot. I mean, this is unconscionable and should never have been done. It should have been postponed like many states have done or provide other uh, mechanisms for people to, uh, to cast their ballots that currently exist. But unfortunately, too many people want to make uh, politics out of this, and, um, and they, they don't want to look at new technology and new innovations that can serve voters. I mean, this is a, a whole different time in our world and, and certainly in our nation, and, and, and democracy and elections have to go on, and we have to find ways to do that that's going to be safe for voters, but also uh, allow for maximum participation. Absolutely. It was a debacle and it was un-American and unpatriotic uh, to endanger souls um, who, were, who were voting, especially in lower income communities that have been devastated by the pandemic. Um, so let, let's, let's take a step back on the security question. Let's envision the political support for electronic voting incrementally growing as a result of the pandemic. What would be the model you suggest in terms of making the most persuasive case to those who are concerned about fraud that we can have a system with a firewall in place uh, and maybe even a board of governors or a board of electors who can oversee digital elections. And you were suggesting to me in, in a prior discussion that on the local or state level, this is something that ought to be considered now and demonstrated its, its uh, efficacy. Um, but in those particular models, you've talked to me about the Estonia model. You've also said in Canada and in Korea, they employed models. What would be the most persuasive case you could make for the model to be safeguarded um, 
in the case of a governor this cycle who was open to the possibility of testing this? Well, I would um, really look at, uh, at a pilot. Um, you know, elections are, are pretty frequent around this country, uh, more than people know. Um, there is always elections for local elections and elections for referendum that are being held. And I think the model that I have seen work in other countries is piloting. And piloting has certainly been done in Canada. And in fact, in New South Wales and Australia, they've had a series of pilots. Uh, but so have other countries who've tried this. And I think, you know, when you use a pilot, you can be certainly inclusive in who you include to take a look at this. And there's, there's going to be critics and there's going to be people who just say, absolutely not, we can't do this. But I, I think, you know, you try to have responsible academic security experts and really you have to make sure that election officials are involved because they're the ones that, um, who are on the line uh, implementing these elections. And I think you can try a pilot in some election. Uh, I don't know if the summer is um, going to work, but you have to include um, election officials in the discussion. And, and while governors, you know, have, have some say, certainly in signing legislation or perhaps authorizing something, it's really the um, chief election official, whether it's the state secretary or it's the um, board of elections in many states that can perhaps authorize this. But in, in many states, um, local officials um, may have the leeway to at least pilot this and try this at the local level. Um, I don't know if we're able to you know, overcome obstacles to allow this to be used in the November election. I just don't know that. But pilots have been the way that I have seen that have led to the use of online voting for, for real elections. And sometime a pilot may, sometimes a pilot may be used um, for a local election and, and the votes counted that way. Oh, Paul, let's say a county or a parish or a state, let's say your home of St. Louis or a township nearby said, I want to experiment with this. What would be the first step? And again, with respect to the question of security, um, the barcode is what you've suggested as having a unique footprint. So you distinguish every voter, but you had also suggested to me biometric data can be absorbed um, so that everyone is acknowledged and uh, distinctly, and there can be no uh, accusation of fraud. But take us through the process. Let's say a, a parish or a county or a town wanted to do that. What would that process look like? Well, first, let me give uh, another example that's coming up in just a few days in South Korea. Now, in South Korea, every voter um, has their, print, their fingerprint recorded um, by, by the state. And so uh, South Korea is utilizing uh, an online remote voting method for people who are in hospitals um, and can't get out to vote on election day. And they use their fingerprint, the biometric of a fingerprint to authenticate a voter and allow them to cast their ballot through online uh, technology. Uh, but for, for what you're talking about in trying to use it in, in the U.S., I mean, I, I think 
from what I from what I find in promoting this and talking to people about this is look at systems that have worked and look how they do this. And so, for instance, um, and again, I'll get back to uh, one of the longest running online voting countries is Estonia. I mean, I would take a hard look at what they do and, and there's companies out there that uh, support them uh, and how they do it. And in, and in Estonia, voters have a, an ID. They have a state ID. Now, we have state IDs. Uh, we have driver's license and other methods for people to use to identify themselves. But I think you, you, know, you have to recognize that many people don't have access to the internet or have a state ID or some kind of ID that can be authenticated by a government. And, and that has to be taken in consideration and other methods used to authenticate a voter. But I think you, you go, you go, you start there and you find, you know, how it works there and what technology software is being used to actually secure this ballot, to authenticate the voter, to wrap it in this digital envelope for it to be transmitted over the internet securely and received by the election office and then um, opened up and then, um, and then uh, counted. And uh, I should also say that these ballots that are actually transmitted over the internet can be printed off one by one to have a paper record of, of a vote if you're, if you're looking for that. Um, but you have to involve, uh, you know, some, some smart people uh, and people who know technology to do this. And they're out there. I mean, there's plenty of folks out there who... Um, who understand, you know, online technology and certainly using on techno technology uh, for people to make their opinions heard. Um, why, but, why do you, so some people confuse the notion of electronic balloting um, with the machines that have erred in a lot of cases in local elections in recent American history. In the aftermath of the 2000 recall and the infamous butterfly ballot, th there was a movement towards machines being employed in election sites. And um, the criticism has been that they are more likely to be tampered with or hijacked and that either companies or bad actors outside of the companies in the electoral process could try to manipulate the result. Um, are those concerns just as much vulnerabilities in the Estonia or the Korea model you describe? Um, or is, is this a different beast than the machines that are brought in that allow you to either scan your ballot or to do it like you would be um, buying a, a ticket on the Amtrak uh, or, um, you know, some kind of computing system. Um, because there has been in the last decade a lot of criticism of the computing machines that have failed in their in the tabulations or have, have errored. Well, Alexander, I, I certainly have followed that criticism. Uh, when I was chairman of the Election Assistance Commission, in 2006, after we had um, 
doled out over $3 billion to the states to buy new equipment, and much of it at that time was electronic voting devices. It would touch screens, people can touch, and have their ballot uh, counted electronically. And many of them back then did not have a paper trail, and the criticism ensued, and people then moved away from that towards more paper-based systems. Let me address that first, um, because I have, you know, I'm an advocate of electronic voting in all kinds of different forms, uh, and 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 touchscreens also. Now, were they perfect? No. Were there problems with people when when they designed these machines and people they had the the uh, candidates so close together on a screen that if you put your finger, you know, on the line, it touched the wrong your wrong choice. Um, yes, that was an issue, and uh, that that has been addressed in voting system guidelines that are put forth by the EAC and the states to address those kinds of issues. Um, but it did did it confuse voters and think that all this machine is being rigged a certain way? Certainly, yes, and it opened itself up for criticism. Uh, and and also, uh, people were concerned about these systems being vulnerable to hacking, and people being able to get into the device and uh, and put in a chip or something to manipulate the machines. And certainly, you know that that has been proven but it's been proven in a vacuum. That is, you know, they did this in laboratories. They got machines and say, aha, listen, I can get into it. But, you know, I have to defend election officials because I know uh, these great folks across this country and the world, you know, who take this very seriously and who secured these devices and prevented people from getting inside of them and hacking them. And contrary to, you know, some belief, uh, these machines uh, were never tied to the Internet on election day um, uh, whatsoever. And uh, there was arguments that this, you know, that they were tied to the internet and people were gonna get in and hacking them. Um, but again, they've come a long way with these devices and new devices that provide a paper trail um, are much better than the ones uh, that were produced in the early 2000s. And we always have to remember that there's a significant segment of our population, Alexander, uh, who can't mark a piece of, pe piece of paper because they have a disability that won't allow them to do that. And these electronic devices um, were, have been utilized, especially since the passage of the Help America Vote Act that, that requires one in each polling place in America, uh, allows them to vote privately and independently. And it's a segment of population that really would be helped by online technology uh, to vote um, because they use these uh, devices and and even our own computer even you know you and I talking today over this computer like this is something that there's a lot of things that we use in technology in our smartphones and our our laptops and desktops that we're really designed uh, to help people with disabilities communicate and and lead normal lives and we've been the beneficiary of that and so I think that you know, this criticism of, uh, of electronics uh, has, has really been overblown in my view. And I'll argue that, uh, you know, while many states have gone back to paper, 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 and that's what they want, and if, if people want that and voters want that, election officials want that type of system, they certainly should be allowed to use it and, and try it and have it. 
uh, if it makes them and their voters feel secure. But I'll argue that, you know, paper ballots are in many cases the least accurate system of voting because people make so many mistakes on them. Uh, when they mark their ballot at home, they may mark two candidates. They may miss a contest um, altogether or they may circle an answer instead of filling in a blank and that might not be caught when it comes in to be counted and therefore that right, person's right. vote is not counted. Electronic machines on the other hand tell you, hey, you've missed this contest or no, you can't vote twice in one race because your ballot will be invalidated. And I've, I've been involved in this process a long time and I've witnessed many, many hand-marked ballots being counted around this country, around the world actually. And I've seen, you know, poll workers who are counting these ballots make mistakes and interpret a ballot uh, and a mark on a ballot a way that I wouldn't have, you know, interpreted that way. So um, we and also have to understand Paul, that. That's why folks are not necessarily concerned about the machines malfunctioning as much as the puppet or puppet master behind the machine. Whereas with local elections, the, the boards of election may have the resources to print the ballots. When you're bringing in a second or third party to be instrumental in the system that is going to enable people to vote, you want, understandably, to make sure that you've done an audit of those technologies and not just the, the machines, but the companies to make sure that there aren't conflicts of interest, right? So as you heard from the outset, I'm very much a proponent of modernizing our electoral infrastructure. Those companies, because you allude to companies, those companies have to be audited just as much as the machinery, right? Oh, yes, uh, by all means. I mean, I, you know, I think that it's really important uh, that these companies are transparent in what they do and that they provide, you know, their source code to academics and other experts to make sure that it, it's not tampered with and, um, and that they allow for, um, you know, very rigorous audits of, um, of their technology and that, you know, the company is not one that takes political sides or involved in any political movements because, um, and that's really is, important. Paul, that is an explanation for why people trust the paper just as much, not just because it's, it's first hand and, and coming second nature to us. It's because in those municipalities, it is more likely to have a grassroots system where your board of election is printing. Um, I, I think to the HBO miniseries recently that aired on the McDonald's scandal and when McDonald's outsourced the printing process of the Monopoly game and through the, the lack of, of accountability and oversight, it was that third party that was the so-called security firm representing McDonald's that um, made the system vulnerable. Uh, be, so it, it is true that at least for local and state elections, when they're printing the ballots, it, there are no third or, or fourth parties. It is the state, it is the city, it is the parish that is printing the, the ballots. That's correct. And, um, 
you have to have uh, you know an independent uh, audit of these systems, and you know most of our states have bipartisan teams, whether they're at the polling place and the poll workers that serve you are in their offices, um, are there state requirements to have uh, independent uh, audits and, and checks and balances as, as the voting process occurs and as the ballots are being counted and, uh, and processed. And I think it's, if you're going to try any system, whether it's a vote by mail or standard system that we're using now or any new systems, you have to have independent actors involved in taking a look at it um, and being fair as they look at it uh, to make sure that uh, nothing is being tampered with and that the security is at the highest levels. So let's focus on what you have said to me is most practical, which is not, at least not in a full-scale form, electronic voting. I know that you and I would both lobby those innovative elected officials who are prepared to pilot a program in their town, that there's no reason that can't happen now, that the prep work for that can't happen to allow for those innovations to be tested in November. If there are innovative leaders who want to realize the nature of our democracy, um, like society has to be in a safe way, democratized digitally, You've said mail balloting in as many states where local election officials, state election officials are prepared to do the due diligence and set up systems like Colorado, like Washington state. Um, and so it will be up to the local and state parties to enact this. What would be your suggestion in the transition for this cycle uh, to do the prep work necessary so that as many states as possible can adopt mail-in balloting for November. What needs to happen today through these coming months of summer and fall to make it work in as many states as possible? Well, I uh, have been on uh, conference calls in the past few weeks with um, many election officials from throughout the United States and uh, they're truly worried uh, about how they're gonna get through elections that they have now this spring and, and certainly uh, very worried about the November presidential election and uh, how, how they're gonna get through that. Um, many election offices across this country have had to uh, had fo have folks work from home or reduce their staff uh, and stagger their hours and, and uh, keep their distance at the election offices because voting does go on, absentee voting, voter registration, and other things that um, keep the system and process going. Uh, but they're very worried. And of course, all of this costs money uh, if they're gonna try something new or if they go from what they, have experienced in the past 6% people voting absentee to 30 or 40% voting by absentee ballot. That's a serious ramp up in, in effort and, and what they may need to process those ballots and where they need to process them and, and how they do it safely and security. And it also costs money. Now Congress did appropriate $400 million uh, in this emergency relief uh, act that they passed a couple of weeks ago uh, that can be allocated to the states to be utilized 
uh, for voting methods uh, to serve voters in the upcoming uh, presidential election. And I certainly hope that uh, election officials take advantage of, um, of those funds. I don't know if it's going to be enough. Um, it's hard to say. Uh, but if it's not, uh, certainly Congress should appropriate more. Uh, but, but I think states should, uh, you know, should form a task force. And, and I should tell you that I, I know that in many states right now, Alexander, uh, local election officials are meeting online and discussing this on a very regular basis and appealing to their chief uh, state election official or to their legislative leaders uh, to give them leeway uh, to serve their voters in November, whether it's through a all-mail process, whether it's through expanding uh, military and overseas voters' methods to, to all voters, or something like that uh, that's going to keep um, the system going, that's going to uh, enable uh, maximum participation, but also safety for, for everyone, from the election officials to the voters alike. So with respect to mail-in balloting, we think of progressive states with current Democratic capital D governors, Colorado and Washington, namely. But you were mentioning to me that the Secretary of State of West Virginia has been keen on this idea in protecting the votes and rights of folks overseas, namely the military. So this is something that can be adopted more fully for overseas voters, military members, and residents of, of the, those states. But from the perspective of politics, what's the most convincing way to make inroads with secretaries of state or governors who would ordinarily oppose this idea because they believe in the sanctity of the vote as in voting at your election site? Well, I'll tell you, as I said to one Secretary of State in recent uh, weeks, uh, that extraordinary times require extraordinary leadership. And, you know, people in many cases are opposed to all mail balloting for, for perhaps political reasons. But, you know, if you look at the history of online voting uh, in Oregon and, and, and then in, particularly in Washington State, where it was actually Republican uh, officials and secretaries of states that promoted that. And there are states that were Republicans that promoted um, all mail balloting or expanding opportunities for people to vote absentee uh, by, uh, you know, in a bipartisan way and not in a partisan way. And I think if there's ever a time that we need to work in a bipartisan spirit, it is now uh, to do that. And I know that election officials across this country, the 6,800 of them, uh, while they may be R's and D's, um, they're working in a bipartisan manner to come up with solutions and to urge sta their state to allow them to use a, a new solution to serve their voters in November. And this doesn't have to be and should not be a, a partisan issue uh, at all. That we, we look at it that way, that uh, we come forth and unite as a country in a bipartisan way to serve voters. Why do you think it has been a partisan issue? Oh, you know, you get some folks who are uh, overly concerned about fraud and use that uh, as an excuse to try uh, new methods of voting. 
And then you also have uh, other folks, you know, who push these methods uh, without any kind of proper uh, security to uh, prevent fraud. And, um, you know, I think there's a balance involved here where you, um, you know, you want to make it, want to make it uh, easy for people to vote, but hard to cheat. And um, that phrase has been used by, by many uh, uh, elected, uh, elected officials throughout this country when they're talking about new voting methods. Um, but I, I would argue that we can have uh, safeguards in place when people vote by, by mail. Uh, you can you know, check their signatures uh, and there's ways to do that. They do that now. There's ways to authenticate people who vote absentee. And, um, you know, now absentee voting has been um, used uh, by some actors uh, for fraud. And people have applied uh, in somebody else's name for an absentee ballot, had it delivered to a house and cast those ballots. And that has been caught by election officials and, uh, and people have been prosecuted for it. And so there is, you know, that type of voter fraud that, that occurs. But again, there's ways that election officials uh, can uh, detect that and can make sure that uh, that fraud is, is not occurring and that people uh, can be authenticated, their ballot um, received and counted as cast. And, and that's what's important. But this is uh, voting by mail is really nothing new because um, people have been voting absentee uh, for a long time. Alexander, way back um, during the Civil War, in the election of 1864, um, I read stories where uh, county clerks and election officials took ballots to the front line, paper ballots, absentee ballots, to, to uh, soldiers on the front line on both sides, on the Union and Confederate sides, to allow them to cast their ballot in the 1864 uh, presidential election. And I think, you know, if it can be done then, um, it certainly can be done now in these modern times and using newer technology and methods to reach voters at home. Right. Well, some of those tactics you described for electronic voting in terms of scanning bars, bars and bar scans can be adopted in paper balloting, distributing uh, papers that are that are distinct to each voter. Uh, as they fill out their their ballot and, and submit it, so there there there's certainly very clear ways to safeguard that, and, and I'm really glad you invoked the Civil War history because maybe that will make the most difference in, uh, with uh, conservative elected officials who who might be most uh, likely to quote Abraham Lincoln or um, refer to Civil War history. That that's an important piece of this that you mention. Um, so, you know, in, in this environment of the pandemic, there is to the argument for electronic balloting that even mail balloting poses a danger to election officials, especially because of the novelty of this disease and virus and the fact that it is scientifically so far been concluded um, that asymptomatic individuals can transmit this. It's not clear if that's just by breathing on someone or coughing. Alternatively, it's quite possible that um, someone who is asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic, 
um, handling ballots and, uh, and, and having them, them opened, um, you know, does create vulnerabilities for postal service employees and also for the readers of those ballots, even if they're being scanned, uh, the people who are opening the envelopes now, it may be that they're put in a, in a, in a voting lockbox and then you let 24 days pass or 14 days pass and then open them. But one thing that has been clear is that the United States Postal Service is in serious financial trouble. And I don't know that you can rely on USPS. Uh, according to the New York Times, within the last uh, 24, 48 hours, uh, there has been some very stark reporting on whether or not uh, the Postal Service is going to, to be able to operate in a functional way. And uh, a House member, uh, Congressman Connolly, I believe, uh, is in touch with the Postmaster General who is giving him some very dire warnings unless there is more funding implemented immediately for the Postal Service. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, when, when a crisis like that, you know, comes ahead and, and it's likely to do so uh, this summer, that I suspect, you know, that Congress will uh, do the right thing and provide funding because the American people will demand it and demand that, um, you know, the mail has to go through as people are still receiving mail every day. I know we do. And, and, and like others, we, we put it in a box and, and wait a day or two before we, uh, we open it. And, and, you know, I can't imagine the millions of packages that are being delivered, you know, by Amazon and, and others. Uh, to people's homes every day. Um, and, and again, you know, there's people going to the grocery stores and other things to get things. And, and, you know, there's ways that these stores are mitigating um, this by, uh, and people are, you know, wearing their masks, but their employees are, you know, wearing masks and other things in the way that people are touching things and, and hand to hand. One, one thing that is, uh, it bothers me greatly because, um, uh, when I'm out and about and I, I pass a gas station, I still see people today uh, getting gas without any kind of protection on their hands. And you don't know who touched that handle before them uh, just a few minutes before. And the virus can live on, on those handles from what I, I've read. But getting back to voting, um, you know, Wisconsin uh, that I criticized earlier uh, did have about 1.3 million people vote by mail. And those ballots were um, you know, sent in by mail and, you know, ways to mitigate that and the, the delays that may happen because of postal service and other things um, is that, you know, they can extend the, the times when these ballots can be received by election officials to be counted. And I'm a strong believer in the private sector. I, I know that there's many private sector companies out there that are uh, helping election officials with this process by providing uh, guidance and methods for them uh, to be safe in their offices in processing uh, absentee ballots and uh, by you know either providing personal protective equipment uh, methods to use UV lights to sterilize ballots as they come in and and other things that could be done to uh, really help ensure the safety for the workers that are going to process these ballots. 
that are going to come from the Postal Service. And I know the Postal Service itself is, has to look at this issue and how its, uh, it's people process these ballots uh, through um, their processing plants. And, of course, your, your own mail carrier that's going to deliver it um, to your door or put it in your mailbox uh, and the kind of protections they may have. But election officials, I know, that are looking at and uh, at best practices that some folks have put up there on how to uh, handle ballots in a time of uh, COVID-19. And uh, I do think that you know this whole thing is going to have us to look at you know the ways that we um, that we do things in our daily lives and certainly through the process of elections. And I think uh, election officials will never look at this the same. Uh, because I do think that we're going to see, no matter what, an increase in people wanting to vote from home out of the fears of catching this virus or anything else that they might get from somebody else um, at a, standing next to somebody at a polling place. So as a final question, Paul, besides the intimidation and the fear, the understandable fear that we're describing and wanting to ensure the franchise for our lawful U.S. citizens who deserve the right to vote unafraid of contracting COVID. Um, The last question I wanted to pose to you is, ultimately, the Supreme Court is the law of the land, and there will potentially be judicial review of any new experiments that are created through this search for alternatives to polling locations. How concerned are you, as with the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which ruled that the governor's executive order could not go forward to delay voting, and and the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling that an extension of absentee ballots was not allowable. Uh, How concerned are you that judicial oversight of some of these novel approaches will uh, stymie the the technology, uh, stymie our efforts to expand access, and could actually end up very significantly influencing the result of the election because the Supreme Court is not going to respect new processes uh, that are required to enable voting at, at the capacity we want this country to in November. Well, that's a valid point. And, you know, I, I know that election officials don't like to see the courts involved in deciding elections. Um, but the court's are often hamstrung by what might be in a state constitution or what might be in a law that doesn't give them the leeway uh, to make a decision that could, you know, allow for some type of novel approach. That's why um, legislatures across this country need to take a serious look at this now. They need to be calling the special session if necessary uh, to allow for um, legal methods uh, that would permit people to vote using uh, the mail um, or other types of solutions uh, that are new to the state. Uh, In my own county here in St. Louis County, 
the St. Louis County Board of Elections went to the Missouri Court of Appeals to get the April 7th election uh, stopped and moved to a later date. And also uh, in their pleading asked to conduct the election by, uh, by mail. And uh, the court denied their request because they found that there was no provision in the Missouri Constitution and Missouri law that permitted them to move an election uh, or to allow by uh, all mail balloting, even though it is technically allowed in elections where there's no candidate on the ballot, so for referendums. Um, now, fortunately, two days later, uh, Governor Parsons of Missouri ordered that the elections be moved to June 2nd, and he did that by executive order. But many states um, don't have uh, emergent, give emergency powers to a governor or to some other entity uh, and perhaps a judicial body uh, to, uh, you know, to do something uh, like moving an election or to try a new method. And therefore, it's incumbent upon legislative bodies to pass a law to permit it, uh, which will lessen the legal challenges that may uh, occur should somebody try to some try something that um, somebody can challenge in court because well, it's not legally allowed. Case in point, Governor Tony Evers in Wisconsin could have more vigorously and maybe even extrajudicially in terms of civil disobedience and whatever he could have done to back up his executive order, you know, that might have been um, viewed by Republicans as a brazen defiance of the Supreme Court. But we know that in our history, in in this republic's history, there have been moments when executives or congressional bodies have had to assume greater control to protect democratic norms and values. And so there is certainly the argument that Tony Evers' executive order could have been backed up with other action that um, compelled individual polling sites to put the health of citizens before the, the wish of the Republican legislature, uh, it will be interesting to see if that kind of executive order in states that have a two-party rule, governor of one party, legislature of another party, will have that ongoing battle. But it's not clear to me that Tony Evers did everything in his power to back up the executive order and to say, this is not happening. The Supreme Court of the United States didn't rule on on the state Supreme Court's decision. It ruled on the absentee question. Um, you know, this is a question of federalism, but I, I suspect that, that it, there may be extrajudicial um, steps taken by executives if if it comes to that. Well, there could well be, you know, and, and I would say, Alexander, that legislative leaders across this country in each state and in the District of Columbia should really take its cues from uh, election officials who have worked and in a bipartisan yeah, and, and, and work in a bipartisan manner. I mean, there was a bipartisan group of uh, election officials in Wisconsin that pleaded with the state and the courts to postpone this election. Um, 
and they were not listened to. And that's going on in other states, too, where bipartisan groups of county clerks and, and election authorities are pleading with their states to change the law to give them some local flexibility in the way that they want to conduct November's election. And I really think they should be listened to in a bipartisan manner and that this bipartisan, that this partisanship should really go away. This is a time for, uh, for national leadership and for love, state leadership and for local leadership. In and Paul a- Gregorio, it's, it's a time to hope, as you said, in this prescient Caltech MIT voting technology report, it's a time to hope for not just better days, but for more democratic days. And notwithstanding the influence, the malevolent influence of the 2016 campaign, the Russian disinformation tactics, and the social media onslaught of memes and misrepresentation of our political identities and parties, and notwithstanding all that, you know, that is a section of, of propaganda and disinformation that we should have known better and counteracted in, in, in preemptively. But that is not a, an explanation for why we can't have online voting in the future. That is but one of the myriad challenges associated with information integrity in the digital age. But Paul D. Gregoria, I, I just want to read your words back to you one more time, if I can. <laughs> sure. It's my hope that I will be visiting my granddaughter, Victoria, at her college 10 years from now, and she will tell me, Papa, I just registered and voted online. It was easy. Um, those words were resonant for me years ago, they are, I'm sure, resonant for you now. And I'm grateful to you to have the imagination as one of the leading US election officials and experts who has supervised and guided successful secure elections for decades. I'm grateful that you have the imagination right now to to bring that perspective um, and to help protect people's lives and their franchise and their rights to vote. Thank you for those words. And I too hope that your that your children and your granddaughter and that I myself will have the opportunity to vote online uh, in this decade. Let's let's not say in our lifetimes, in this decade. Thank you, Alexander. I mean, thank you for your kind words. And, uh, you know, Victoria is now uh, the eldest of, of 13 grandchildren. Uh, she, she was our only one when I, I really wrote that article, and now now we have many more. And she's going to be turning 16 in June, and, um, and we video chat quite a bit uh, right now because we can't leave her house and she can't leave hers. Uh, but I am still hopeful uh, that she'll be able to cast a ballot, uh, register and cast a ballot online two years from now. I, I, I have hope that uh, perhaps that could happen, and maybe who knows, this crisis may, uh, may move that along uh, more than we think. We will hope so. Thank you again, Paul, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you.